titled Church Under Fire, The Seven Greatest Threats Facing the Church Today. Uh, Jesus showed us two weeks ago how to avoid the threat of ignorance in John chapter 17. The Apostle Paul warned us last week of the threat of compromise from uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4. And now we're returning to John chapter 17, the, the last section of that chapter, and picking up where Jesus left off in his warning against a third threat, division. Division. Once again, I feel like the timing of this message couldn't be any better because what's the opposite of division? If you want to avoid division, you need to strive for. My fellow Americans, this is a day of history and hope of renewal to overcome the challenges of the pandemic, systemic racism, political divisiveness, to restore the soul of America. It requires the most elusive of all things in a democracy, unity, unity. My whole soul is in this, bringing America together, uniting our people, uniting our nation, and I ask every American to join me in this cause. Thus began President Biden's inaugural address on Wednesday with an impassioned plea for unity. And then he got in a limo and drove over to the White House and signed more executive orders, more progressive orders than any president ever in his first half week in office. He disinvited all evangelical Christians from the national prayer service. Even his own Catholic bishops were deemed too conservative to attend. Cabinet-wise, we will now have a staunch public defendant of Planned Parenthood as our Secretary of Health, uh, the first transgender person as Assistant Secretary of health, health. These people are now our exemplars of health in America. If that is President Biden's idea of unity, I guess you can count me out. I will continue to pray for him because Scripture commands me to, but don't plan on me uniting to join that cause anytime soon. Is unity even possible in our politicized, polarized world today? Perhaps as believers, we need to back up even a step further and ask an even more basic question, is unity even desirable? Jesus himself declared, I have not come to bring peace, but what? A sword, right? For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. That doesn't sound like unity to me. In the Old Testament, God's prophets, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, warned against false prophets who would mislead my people saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Because as the Apostle Paul asks rhetorically in the New Testament, how can there be peace? What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Some things, righteousness and sin, light and darkness, Christian support, and the repeal of the Hyde Amendment, these things cannot peacefully coexist. And yet the Bible also affirms how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And that's the rub. That's the, the, the kicker this morning. Unity can be a good and pleasant, a wonderful thing. But in, unity in and of itself is a value-neutral concept. ISIS is unified. 
the KKK, pretty unified. The question is, what are you unified by? When brothers, Scripture says, when the family of God, Christ's own adopted siblings united by his blood, when we dwell in unity, that is a beautiful thing. That's why all two plus dozen of the New Testament calls for unity refer only, specifically, in the context of the church. 1 Corinthians 1.10, Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's who Paul's writing to, the family of God, unified under his name, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be not united in the same mind. Ephesians 4, maintain the unity of the Spirit. That's our unity. The the Spirit, Holy Spirit, the bond of peace. For there is one body of Christ, His church, and one Spirit. Just as you were called to one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, Christian unity. Philippians 1.27, stand firm in that one spirit, with that one mind, striving side by side for the faith of what? The gospel. That is our cause for unity, the gospel. Brothers and sisters, if you're looking for unity, you have come to the right place this morning. Now listen, if you're holding your breath waiting for America to be unified, I'm afraid I've got bad news for you. If you think Biden can deliver, I've got a ketchup popsicle I'd love to sell you. But you and I can experience unity, real, genuine, personal, life-giving, God-glorifying, God-infused unity this morning if we are unified by the gospel. We can experience true unity only in the gospel. We've got to be unified around Christ's cross in his empty tomb, what we, the, the gospel we just got done singing about together. That is the glue that holds us together in unity as a church, as God's people. And praise God, it is stronger than any other adhesive force out there in the world. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Yes, we need to recognize, as the Apostle Paul did, the gospel is divisive. Jesus has and does and will continue to divide mother from father, sister from brother, uh, husband from wife. Those who repent and trust in him for the forgiveness of their sins from those who will not will be divided. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God. Not only the power of God for salvation, but Jesus saves us into unity, into a new spiritual family as well. Christ is the power of God for true Christian unity. Both Jews and Greeks, Paul says. Today he might as well say both Democrats and Republicans. Jews and Gentiles were about as divided ethnically 2,000 years ago as we are politically in this country today. But here comes Paul making this radical claim that the gospel has the power to unify us all, spiritually 
under the banner of Christ, that the force that holds us together in the church, Jesus' own blood, is more powerful than all the other forces that would seek to divide us in the world. Politics, identity politics, race, class, gender, those who cheer for and against the chiefs now that the Rams are out of town. The gospel trumps it all. And so here's your outline for this morning. As I said, we're we're back in John chapter 17. We're going to begin in verse 20 in a moment. As Jesus turns his focus from the threat of ignorance to the the danger of division, and he's going to arm us here with five weapons for countering division and seeking Christian unity. And with three of those in the middle, three of the five, I thought three was enough, I'm going to try and apply Jesus' exhortations here in our modern context, practically in our society, in our world today, by taking up probably the three most divisive issues within the church in this past year. But here's how I want to do it. Because I know that we have waded into some pretty turbulent waters these past two Sundays now. I told you on the front end of this sermon series that many churches are way too safe, way, way too risk avoidant, way too conflict avoidant to, to touch any of these issues with a 10-foot pole. I told you two weeks in a row now that this was going to provide opportunities for division, and yet this morning I have to confess that I owe some of you in this church, an apology. I need to apologize not for stepping on your toes, not for preaching difficult things. I stand behind everything I preached the last few weeks and behind my decision to preach it as we studied last week in 2 Timothy 4. No, I need to apologize this morning because if I'm honest, I half expected some of y'all to leave after those sermons. I was afraid that I might not see some of you who are openly pro-choice back after last week's Sanctity of Life Sunday. And on the other side of the aisle, when I've criticized President Trump two weeks ago for promulgating lies that precipitated the riots on the Capitol, I expected some of y'all to chant, not my pastor, and peace out. And so as your pastor, I need to apologize to you this morning for selling some of you short on your appreciation for and your commitment to the unity of this church. That we really can disagree, even passionately so at times, and still dwell in good and pleasant unity as brothers and sisters in Christ. It's sad that I would expect that, isn't it? I mean, what a low bar we have set for ourselves in the church that I would feel the need to applaud you for staying at a church when you hear things in a sermon that you disagree with. And yet, in a society where the default response to almost any disagreement has become to simply leave, or better yet, to cancel your opposition, to restrict and ban them, censor and shut them down. In our cancel cultural world, the unity of the church can stand out like a beautiful light in the darkness. And so this morning's message is going to seek to highlight just that and and really just to affirm you all. It should be so encouraging. The past two weeks now have been 
really high challenge, conviction. It's important. But this morning is going to be, I think, really high encouragement for most of us. Because I have been so encouraged, genuinely encouraged as your pastor this past year. So rather than critique, I want to celebrate. Rather than continue to, to poke you, I want to praise you. And more than anything, I want us collectively to praise Jesus for the unity that he is working in and through his church here as we continue to look to him, submit to him as our glue that bonds us together in the midst of a divided world. Amen. So would you stand with me once again as we read together from John chapter 17. We're going to be in verses 20 through 26. Let me remind you of the context here. This is Jesus' final prayer. His last words, in fact, in the upper room during the Last Supper with his disciples the night before he headed out to the Garden of Gethsemane and then ultimately the next morning to his trial and crucifixion. And so these are weighty words. Jesus had prayed in verses 6 through 19, you remember, for his 12 disciples specifically. And now in these last seven verses, he's going to shift his focus and pray not just for them, but for everyone who would come to him in faith. And what is this prayer? Here it is. Hear the word of the Lord. I do not ask for these only, Father, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word your unifying word, God, your word, your gospel, your good news is the only thing strong enough with the power to unify diverse, differing people like us. And so, Father, as we gather now, submit ourselves under the authority of your word, I pray that you would use it to sanctify us, to grow us in our knowledge and love and relationship with you and that, Father, as a byproduct, as we draw closer to you, we would also necessarily draw closer to one another in true brotherly, sisterly, Christian unity this morning for our good and for our witness 
to the world and for your glory most of all we pray all of this jesus in your name amen you may be seated before we dive in here please don't miss the significance of this passage jesus could have prayed for any number of important things for us that last night in the upper room. He could have prayed for our faith, that we would all remain devoted. He could have prayed for our spiritual growth, that we would all be discipled. He could have prayed for our missional fervor, that we would all be faithful disciple makers. But Jesus' final prayer for us as his church was for our unity, that we would all be one. And so, how do we then avoid the threat of division? Five things. Number one, we cry out to God. First and foremost, before anything else, if we're going to be unified, it has to begin and end with prayer. Prayer is the only thing that has the power to unify God's church because God is the only one who has the power to do it. That's the very context of this passage. It is not inconsequential that this is a prayer, John 17. This is Jesus praying, the Christ, the Son, imploring God, the Father, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So let me, let me ask you, brothers and sisters, how frequently do you pray for the unity of this church of West Hills? How frequently do you pray for the unity of the church in America, the church worldwide? We have to have some challenge and and points of conviction this morning. I don't know about you, but my answer to that question is pretty personally convicting. I pray for you all here at West Hills often. I pray for your health. I pray for the the health and well-being of of your loved ones as you submit prayer requests here. I pray for your spiritual health, most especially for your growth in godliness, your faith. I pray for your marriages. I pray for your parenting. I pray for your kids. I pray for your witness. I pray for your, your evangelism to the lost world. But I will be honest, I rarely pray for this church's unity. And principle one here is a real gut check for me personally. Now more than ever, given the past year that we have gone through together as a church, we need to be praying regularly, desperately for our unity. The Apostle James rebukes us. He says, you don't have because you don't ask. Let it not be so of our unity as a church. But Jesus assures us, Whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. What a promise. What a promise. It's difficult to know, though, whether you're asking something in Jesus' name or not, whether you're asking according to his will or not. 1 John 5.14 promises, if we ask anything according to his will, then he will hear us. But it can be tough to know, right? whether what you're asking for is in accordance with God's will. Does God really want that new promotion for me? Does God really want that new romantic love interest for me? Does God really want physical healing for me that I'm praying for? But you know what you can always rest assured that God wants for us when you pray for it? Unity in the church. Unity 
if Jesus himself prayed for it, that is a safe prayer for you and I to pray, and it's an important one. But perhaps even more important here than our collective call to cry out to God in prayer is our reminder that Christ himself, our mediator, is doing so for us. Not only did Jesus ask the Father for our unity while he was here in the flesh on earth, but he is in heaven right now at the right hand of the Father, Hebrews 7.25, always interceding for us. That means that Jesus is still up in heaven interceding advocating with God the Father on behalf of us, his church, friends, that we may all be one. Praise God that even when I, your sinful, forgetful, distracted pastor, neglect to pray for this church's unity, we have an intercessor, a mediator, an advocate who is always looking out for his church. Because it is his church, after all. It's not mine. It's not even yours. I know we talk about Baptist local church autonomy. We're not in charge of the church, right? We're just the body. He is the head. It's his church. He calls the shots. And as much as you might think that you don't like conflict and division, Jesus cares even more about our unity than either you or I do. Praise God for it. Rule number two. Rule number two for avoiding division is we need to remember our common faith. Remember our common faith. Jesus prays in verse 20 for those who will believe in me through their word. That is, through the disciples' word, their testimony of faith, the common faith passed down from the 12 here in John chapter 17 to the 120 in Acts chapter 1, then to the 3,000 by Acts chapter 2, and now all the way down 2,000 years later to the, you know, less than a billion Christians, uh, me and you, I pray, you, that same shared faith. Jesus prays that we may all be one common faith. He continues in verses 25 and 26, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you that you have sent me. I made known to them your name. So I already said it in the introduction. It's all about what or who you're unified around, right? Jesus isn't praying here for some nebulous, vague, undirected sense of unity. He prays pointedly, specifically, for our unity in him. He says, for those who believe in me. In fact, he, he clarified it in the passage just before this that we read two weeks ago. He said, I'm not praying for the world. I don't even bother praying for the world. Unity in the world isn't possible. There's no glue strong enough. He says, I don't pray for those who don't know God, verse 25. But he says, called you to be holy, to be distinct from the world, a people for my own possession. So we are to be unified. We can now be unified by our common faith in Christ Jesus. This has, of course, been put to the test, not only here at West Hills, but in the church at large. In seemingly unprecedented ways this past year, listen, the church has always, in our sin, found things to disagree over, right? We've Historically, divided doctrinally, denominationalism, over things like mode and method of baptism, 
over the authority and inspiration of Scripture. We've divided practically over issues like slavery and the role of women in the ministry. We'll even find ways in our petty disobedience to split churches over things like preferred worship music style and, yes, even the proverbial color of the carpet in the sanctuary. But I know from so many pastor friends that I've talked to this past year that in many of their churches, it has been more difficult than ever to remain unified when we face so much conflict due, number one, first application to COVID-19, right? It's your first application point in your bulletins there. I want to celebrate. We get to celebrate this morning our unity here at West Hills amidst COVID conflict. I started trying this week to make a list of all the ways that the world has divided over this pandemic, but there's not even time to list them all. Obviously, for starters, Satan has done everything in his power to divide us politically because even a virus can be politicized somehow. So this issue gets framed as those who defend science and life, human life on on, on the one hand versus those who defend liberty and the quality of life, things like the economy and jobs on the other side of the aisle. Folks, have divided scientifically based on whose information you even trust. One month masks were bad, now they're good. One month the virus spread via contact, now it's airborne. The vaccine is dangerous, no, just kidding, it's safe. We've divided practically in our responses to it, our decision-making. Some of you have decided, I'm not going to let this thing dictate my life any more than I have to. You're still getting together with your friends. You're going about life as normally as possible. Others of you, maybe joining us virtually, literally haven't left your house or had a real in-person, face-to-face live interaction with another human for 10 months. Most importantly, in terms of our Christian church unity, there has been the perpetual threat to divide ecclesiologically in terms of what the proper response of the church should be to all of this. Some of you have honestly disagreed with some of the ways that we've gone about the pandemic here as a church from both ends of the spectrum. Some of you thought it was careless and and irresponsible that we were one of the first churches to reopen back in June. Others of you can't believe, still can't believe, that we're making you wear a mask today. It's almost laughable now to to think back on our concerns from last January, this time last year, about how we were going to maintain unity in the midst of launching a second service at 9 o'clock. That is nothing compared to trying to hold a church together in the midst of what we're experiencing right now, remaining unified as two churches, frankly, an in-person church and a virtual church. Many churches have not even tried. Many churches have, have, have used this as an excuse, as a sign from God, throw their hands up in the air, we're just going to launch a so-called virtual campus, and, and they have no intention of ever reunifying the church. And yet, in the midst of all of that, West Hills has remained unified. Even when we disagree, we're unified. As leaders, your elders of this church, you need to know are unified. Those of you at home who are joining us virtually right now and those of us here in person, we're unified. And this isn't just like Biden's inaugural address. I'm not just repeating the word unity enough that, that maybe I can somehow will it into existence. It's, it's like actually happening. We, we actually are unified. I'm telling you the truth. You have proven yourselves faithful to the unity of this church. 
Sure, some of you may complain that you have to put a mask on, but you do it anyway and you come. Yeah, some of you have been frustrated by the learning curve of trying to figure out at-home worship with small kids, but you're making the virtual thing work anyway, and you're continuing to be unified with your church. Regardless of your COVID politics and preferences, West Hills, you all have continued to give generously to the church financially. You've continued to find ways to serve, even remotely, and you've prayed faithfully for this church. And most of all, most importantly, you've continued to love one another in true Christian unity, even those you disagree with in the process. Brothers and sisters, I just want to commend you this morning. That kind of unity, commend God, that kind of unity is only possible through our common faith in Christ Jesus. Only he can do that. You simply will not find it in the world. Between maskers and anti-maskers, between vaccinators and anti-vaxxers, forget about it. It's only going to happen in the church because the unifying force of the gospel is stronger than any force in the world that seeks to divide us. Amen? Number three, we need to not just believe in Jesus, but to abide in him, to abide in Christ. Jesus prays in verses 21 through 23 that they may all be one. How so? What does it mean? In what way? Jesus clarifies, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us. The glory that you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me. That they may become perfectly one, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. What's going on here? All of this, you and me and I and you and them and us and I and them, dizzying talk. What's Jesus doing? I think two things, two summary points of what he's doing. First, Jesus is using the Trinity here as a powerful illustration of the kind of unity that he desires for his church. How unified does he want us to be? As unified as the Father and the Son are. That's pretty unified. If you know anything about Trinitarian biblical theology, that, that they may be one even as we are one, he prays. Second, I think Jesus is reiterating here point number two from above, but he's pushing it even further now. He's saying it's not enough to simply believe in me. Yes, that's the starting point. That's the common starting point of your common faith. But I think Jesus is acknowledging here that this world is going to get so polarized, so divisive, that the only way the church can remain truly unified is by constantly abiding in Christ. He says in verse 21, that they may be in us and I in them. This brings to mind Jesus' metaphor from two chapters earlier, John Chapter 15, he says, I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Certainly not be unified. The very best way to ensure 
that we stay together as a church is to stay connected to the vine, Christ. Kent Hughes uses the illustration of an upside-down ice cream cone. If Jesus is, is the tip, is the point at the top, we may start on our faith journeys you know, far from him down toward the bottom and, and frankly far apart from one another. Maybe we're at opposite ends of, of the rim of this opening of this giant imaginary ice cream cone. But then as we abide in Christ, as we draw closer to Jesus in unity and grow in him, we necessarily are getting closer to one another as we grow. I use the same picture and advice in my marriage counseling. The best way to ensure that you stay unified in your marriage is to both mutually pursue Jesus with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. If you're both chasing after him and drawing closer to him, you will necessarily be getting closer to one another, right? So here's a second application point for us. The second major divisive issue that has plagued so many churches this past year, but that by the grace of God, we at West Hills can this morning celebrate our unity as a church amidst diversity is racial unrest. Racial unrest, right? As if the pandemic wasn't enough this past year. George Floyd's death this summer and the reemergence of the Black Lives Matter movement has absolutely rocked the church and its unity, and frankly, split the church world. On the one hand, you have woke churches decrying the evils of pervasive systemic racism and adopting critical race theory as the solution to the problem. Whites need to recognize and lay down our privilege for the sake of empowering our black brothers and sisters. Relationships are all about power. It's a zero-sum game. In order for you to win, I have to lose. There are only oppressed and oppressors, and you're either one or the other. And don't forget, Jesus opposed the oppressors, and he laid down his privilege as God for the sake of the marginalized and the disadvantaged. That's all one camp. And then on the other hand of the spectrum, you've got the churches who swing that pendulum in reaction against what they perceive to be an unbiblical, divisive identity politics of critical race theory. And they may even swing so far as to claim that race doesn't even exist. It's just a concept. And frankly, a rather unimportant one, an unhelpful one. We shouldn't care whether someone is black or bright or black or brown or white or yellow or purple. It doesn't matter. There's only one race after all, the human race. And if racism still exists at all, on a personal level, I, I mean, I'm not a racist. No, nobody in my church is a racist. But hypothetically, if there is still any racism out there, it's in individuals' hearts, and the only way to get past it is to stop talking about it so darn much. I mean, if we, if we keep making such a big deal about race, of course racism is going to continue to exist. And so we just need to try and be colorblind. And then, I want to say somewhere in the middle, but truthfully, I feel like maybe it's just a rejection of that spectrum altogether, a rejection of the false dichotomy. Amidst all of that disunity, there's a church like West Hills. We've got both camps of Christians represented here. But probably more than anything else, most of us, I suspect, would find ourselves in the neither category. Because most of us 
my conversations with you recognize that whether it's a concept or not, race still does matter in our country today. If you don't think so, you can ask any of our African-American brothers or sisters here. Their race matters to them and to those who see them and interact with them as black. And yet, I've never heard any of them demand an apology for me for my whiteness or buy into the dangerous narrative that power is the unavoidable, decisive currency in all of our relationships rather than love. We are called by Jesus regardless of our race in all that we do in love like Jesus to consider others more significant than yourselves regardless of your race, your gender, any of it. And I just want to encourage you this morning that I think we actually do it for the most part here at West Hills. I am so encouraged as your pastor to watch this church love one another in true Christian unity, even when we disagree on second-tier issues like this. Because at the end of the day, we all know, I pray we know, that in Christ Jesus, we are all sons and daughters of God through faith. For as many of us as have been baptized into Christ, we have put on Christ. There is, therefore, neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, no black or white, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. Amen? Number four, we need to consider our calling. Jesus explains in verses 21 and 23 that at least one of the reasons that he prays for our unity is so that the world may believe that you, God, the Father, have sent me, Jesus. It's for the world's sake, brothers and sisters, our Unity is a powerful, countercultural witness to the watching world. John 13, 35, Jesus said, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if, if you have love for one another. But that means conversely, if we don't, then they won't. If the church doesn't look any different from the world, if we're just as divided as the world is, then why would anyone give the church or Christianity a second thought? What's, what's any different about us? We're just another echo chamber like out there. But man, if we can remain unified despite disagreements, even real, significant but not ultimately eternally significant disagreements, then that forces the world to ask, what is the adhesive bonding force that brings this group and keeps this group of otherwise diverse, differing people together? It forces them to ask, clearly, whatever unifies that church must be stronger than, than even race or class or politics. Man, what a powerful witness in our divided world. And so your third application point here should come as no surprise now. I touched on it in the introduction 
and numerous prior sermons because it's probably the most divisive of all the threats to our unity today, and that's political disagreement. Because we've touched on it, I'll be brief here. I don't want to beat a dead horse, but I'll just simply say, say this. Listen, if you, if you feel a greater sense of natural unity and closeness with an atheist of a similar political persuasion to you than you do with a fellow believer who happens to be across the political aisle than you, Satan has won. Amen. Lastly, number five, to avoid division, we must anticipate our common hope. Verse 24, Jesus prays, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me. And brothers and sisters, if Jesus prayed for it, if Jesus prayed that we'd be with him one day in heaven to see his glory face to face, you can believe, you can take it to the bank that we really have a blessed hope and assurance that one day all of us, regardless of your response to the pandemic, regardless of your response to racial unrest, regardless of political disagreements, all of us who have been adopted into God's heavenly family by repenting of our sins and trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation by faith, we will one day be with him where he is and see him in his glory face to face. Amen? But guess who else you're going to see there on that day? whole lot of these brothers and sisters will be back together one day around the family table in paradise and listen you don't want it to be awkward in heaven do you I mean seriously you don't want it to be awkward when you see that person in heaven that's why Jesus says Matthew 5, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift in context. He's talking about offering sacrifices on the altar at the temple. You know, first century Judaism. Saying like before you even bother to, 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 to offer your offerings, your sacrifices that reconcile you, that that cover over your sins and reconcile you vertically to God the Father, you can just leave, pause that for a minute, and go be reconciled horizontally first. It's that important, our unity. And so today we apply the same principle in communion and celebrating the Lord's table together, which we'll observe in just a moment together. That if you have something against a brother or sister, or they have something against you, Jesus exhorts us here to go first to them and be reconciled, and then come offer your gift. Then come eat and drink of the elements. Our unity is so important. Jesus doesn't even want us to come to the family table until we've made up. That is a great weekly accountability check for our unity as a church. Listen, if there are divisions in the church at West Hills, I should know about them on Monday morning because I ought to find a lot of leftover crackers and juice in the seats because you're not supposed to eat and drink until you've been reconciled. 
Unity is that important. But brothers and sisters, when we collectively anticipate our common future hope, the joy of heaven has a way of putting the petty squabbles of this world in proper perspective. May we all, my prayer today, may we all, as Jesus prayed, be one in Christ as a countercultural witness to the world unto God's glory and until he brings us home to our future coming common hope of heaven. Amen. Let's pray.